All right, so let's get started with today's message. Uh, hopefully I can stay on track here. So uh, we're continuing with our Rediscovering and Restoring Biblical Christianity series, uh, the Grace Christian Fellowship 2019 to 2021 version. And we're looking at 15 emphasis, which we are rolling through on, on the, uh, um, whatever this is called, the projector or whatever. And uh, emphasis five Last week was supposed to be Emphasis 5A, and I really didn't stay on track, and we didn't get much of the... So I just made this Emphasis 5A small, too. Um, so last week I asked Deanna to play the song she wrote about uh, from Isaiah 58, 12, because that's one of the two most important verses for this series. And uh, I, if, if you notice in the New American Standard, it says those from among you will rebuild the ancient ruins. And then I just want to make sure everyone remembers the point we made last week about this verse. No English translation really does a good job of translating that particular verse. Uh, I've not been able to find one anyway, and I've looked at 30 or 40 different English translations. Probably the New American Standard is the best, but the, those from among you really uh, has to do with your spiritual children, those that come out of your, your issue, your offspring. Uh, it, it has to do with your de- those from your descendants. In other words, you'll give birth to people who will, do the, who will restore uh, the ancient ruins and relay the ancient foundations. And so... Um, that's really a very precious verse because uh, what we're, what we're uh, believing that God wants to do in the earth, uh, many people would identify the 20th century because of the Pentecostal and charismatic movements as a time when God began to restore some of the person, presence, ministry, power of the Holy Spirit to the church. Of course, there's a long way to go in that regard. However, that, that process has begun, and in, John, in John's version of the Last Supper, John 13 through 16, John emphasizes Jesus' last speech at the Last Supper about what, how his ministry would continue through the disciples. And he says, I no longer call you servants, but I call you friends because a servant does not know what his master is doing. And he's saying... Uh, you guys by now have started to know my heart. You've started to know who I am, why I came, and what I'm about. And you're going to continue who I am, why I came, and what I'm about. And you're going to do it by the person and ministry of the Holy Spirit. So in those three chapters, four chapters, Jesus says more about the Holy Spirit than at any other place in his ministry And one of the things he says is that he, the spirit of truth, the helper, the parakletos, parakletos, I think it's pronounced something like that, will um, lead you and guide you into all the truth. Now, there are some uh, in the church misinterpret that verse to mean that that was only a function of the Holy Spirit uh, until the New Testament was written. And then God was done speaking truth. Although he's done writing scripture, as Jude 3 makes clear and and passages toward the end of Revelation, and we must not add or subtract from the scripture, 
Nevertheless, he's not never been done, nor will he be done, in, except in eternity, revealing the meaning of it. The very nature of fallen man and, uh, and, and before man fell, the very nature of being a creature is that we are not omniscient, nor are we infinite in any capacity. And so it will always be a function of the Holy Spirit to lead and guide us into all the truth. And the Holy Spirit will always be unveiling truths that have been ignored in a particular time period or missed in a particular time period or misunderstood. And there's actually unfolding things that in some cases, uh, very few Christians have ever quite really grasped or whatever. And so um, what, what God is doing in terms of pouring the Holy Spirit out in the past century or and a half is he's beginning a process of restoration. Acts 3.19 talks about the period of the restoration of all things. And... Um, God is about restoring the church to everything he intended it to be. And even in many cases beyond what it ever was, as the Bible always makes clear in Haggai and, and in, all over the New Testament, the glory of the latter house will be greater than the glory of the former house. Although all things must go through a period of dying and be buried in the earth, in order to be resurrected, when they're resurrected, they're matured, they're, they're uh, perfected, and they're um, made, made more active and, and uh, more, more impactful. And so, you know, although the church, in many ways, went through uh, times of decline over many centuries and so forth, the, the Reformation and movements like this uh, are, are, were only the beginning of a, of a rainstorm that's coming. It's sprinkling, but it's going to rain. And the, the latter-day rain will pour out God's Spirit on all tribes, peoples, nations, tongues, and so forth. I love the quote of, of Spurgeon that, that the, the Holy Spirit would never allow uh, the name of the Lord to be diminished or impugned by the, by the accusation that he was not able to convert the world to himself. And so the, the negative eschatologies that began in the 1830s among the uh, occult in Ohio called the Millerites and were picked up around the time of the Civil War by evangelicals and by the end of the 19th century became the predominant evangelical way of thinking about the future. These are completely modern ideas. They're not even Christian ideas. And actually dispensational premillennialism, which is the I, sh I can't really call it faith. I should, you know, it's faith in the sense of, uh, you know, if your uh, fear is a kind of faith, uh, it's, it's kind of anti-faith. And the anti-faith of this, uh, the Antichrist is going to beat us all up, and there's just, will there be faith left in the earth, and there's just going to be a small remnant, and all this 
kind of uh, lack of trust in the, in the greatness and sovereignty of God and so forth that has become uh, the daily uh, unbelieving spirit of modern evangelical Christianity. I, I don't mean to be critical or harsh, but it, it's uh, bordering on, if it's not in fact, blasphemy. Now the pause is for effect to make you think about it. To believe that, that uh, the Lord is actually going to get his rear end kicked by sin, the world, and the devil, and uh, he's not able to conquer without having a geopolitical event where he forces everyone to believe in himself, that totally is, that totally is a blasphemous view of God. Its expectations are so low that it's more the faith of an unbeliever than it is the faith of a Christian. And it's amazing that, uh, unfortunately, 95% of um, evangelicals believe that modern faith called dispensational premillennialism and all the negativity thereof and not only is it bordering on blasphemy, but it, it, it uh, leads us to have to wrestle with a very important thing. You know, God, uh, when he was considering judging Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, within the Godhead, the Lord said to himself, like Genesis 1:26, when he says, let us make man in our image, the Lord says to himself, shall I do this in the earth without telling my friend Abraham? God doesn't do things without telling his friends. And so the very fact that 95% of those who call themselves Christians have the wrong expectations of what God is doing in the earth is, should be alarming. It should be quite alarming. And that fact alone, I'm a little bit concerned right now with the level of zeal in our church. On, now, in some things, like the things that have to do with community and so forth, but in terms of, you know, I gave a message a couple weeks ago on, on the 19th, I, uh, whatever that was, of April, I guess, uh, about a response to COVID-19. And I, I just don't think this is happening in our church. But, you know, God sometimes... Uh, puts us through times like this, and what is he doing? He's actually calling us to sanctify ourselves to his presence and to come away and be alone, as Jesus had much to say about seeking the Father in secret, and a lot of studying is best done in secret. And uh, we are now starting Emphasis 5, of what God wants to restore. And uh, when we did this series at Wright State a few years ago, we spent one whole school year, just on Emphasis 5, 32 lessons, on the importance of the Word of God. And what I'm a little concerned about, to be honest, as a pastor, is the gap between what God has called this church to in terms of biblical studies and what we actually have going on because I see hours being spent on Facebook, uh, on video games, on uh, other trivia. Uh, 
you know, also the whole thing in Galatians where Paul tells us, don't turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. And I'm all, all for the fact that we think it's okay to eat and drink and be merry, but sometimes we're eating and drinking and being merry too much. And so um, I, I just want to, like, as we get into today's message, we're going to start on the Word of God. And this is not just an academic su- subject to tickle your brain and to deceive ourselves into thinking, oh, Grace Christian Fellowship, we're really into biblical studies, and, and we have book lists, and, and we have book groups. and uh, This is something that we're called to change. We're living in a time where in the last 70 years, every decade has seen a decline in reading, both in the amount that's read and the ability to read. And so we, not, we have increasingly people who used uh, an idea that was prevalent in academia that's been proven entirely false, that people have different learning styles. And so some people learn by listening to audios. Some people learn by watching YouTube videos of John Piper or some great speaker or something. And, uh, you know, there's this small percentage of people who read. But that's not my style. And we've actually bought that, even though there's been all kinds of studies that prove that your reading style is whatever you forced yourself to do. In other words, your learning style, I meant to say. It, to, to have a learning style is a very important discipline, and it's, it comes through much painstaking effort. You can work at being a better listener. You can work at being a better reader. You can work at being a more logical thinker. You can learn what, uh, what is a fallacy in thinking. Um, you know, Google uh, an article called Love is a Fallacy by Max S-C-H-U something. I always forget if it's Schumacher or Schuh. Somebody look it up real quick. But read, read that article, Love is a, a Fallacy. And it will at least introduce you to the subject of logic and logical thinking. In my classes at Sinclair Community College, I would ask, how many people have ever taken a class in logic and logical thinking? And in all the years I taught there, I had one homeschooler who was still in high school that knew what... Most of the people in the class didn't even know... When I said... Uh, have you ever taken a class in the academic discipline of logic and logical thinking? And I actually had a student go, what's an academic discipline? What does that mean? I'm like, okay, you're in college? Uh, oh, Lord, have mercy on us. And so I uh, just had their seat drop through the floor and said, no, <laughs> no, 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 I didn't. I don't, the Lord could do that, but he probably would. He'd probably be more gracious than me. I, I just got depressed and went home and cried. Um, but no, I, uh, and I never had anyone who'd studied logic or logical thinking. And yet, you know, I got a call this week from one of these, uh, polling companies and she promised this is only going to take a minute. And an hour later, I'm like, are you kidding me? Of course, she didn't like my answers because I kept saying, they'd say, 
would your opinion be this, this, and this, and this? And I kept saying, I only have a master's degree. I'm not educated enough to have an opinion on this subject. <laughs> and she did, you know, and like our, our culture is brainwashed into thinking you should have an opinion. And we, what we do is we have people who have very strong opinions, which it would not be an exaggeration to say that over 90% of the time they're not qualified to have an opinion. That's, that has become the nature of our culture. So with that, let's get into studying the scriptures here a little bit. Uh, all that borders on Acts 17 being more, you know, search the scriptures daily. So we've gone through emphasis 0 through 4. I'm not going to review that. We're starting on emphasis 5. And emphasis 5 is restoring all scripture as the word of God. It is no secret that very few Christians read the whole Bible on any kind of consistent or regular basis. Uh, there is a movement, it's especially strong in some reform circles, to teach in an expository way where whole books of the Bible are gone through and studied. That's good. Very important. If you've never gone through my uh, teaching called Five Approaches to Bible Study, I would encourage you to have somebody uh, on the leadership team take you through that study. And um, one, of, one of the most important things about that study is it's, uh, it gives you the, the benefits of each type of Bible study, like the thematic approach or character studies, and the, the pitfalls. And they all have advantages and they all have disadvantages. And they all have things that you need to watch out for. Because if you're going to study uh, thematically, uh, you're, you're going to skip important subjects. Whereas if you go straight through books, you're forced to deal with texts you don't want to. If you're, you know, it's good to study character studies, but in, in the devotional approach where you really kind of let the Word of God act as a mirror and read you, or as Hebrews 4.12 calls it, a, a you know, sharp sword that, div that divides between soul and spirit and uh, judges the thoughts and intentions of our heart. It's good to read devotionally, but often that won't give you enough scripture. And if we believe that 2 Timothy 3.16 says all scripture is God-breathed, then you don't believe it if you don't read the whole scripture. You know, you, you tell me what you believe, I'll observe you for a day, then I'll tell you what you believe. So if you believe that the sum of thy word is truth, you would study the sum of thy word, and you'd learn how to put it all together. One of the features of the Reformed Study Bible that we often give as gifts to people in, in our church and stuff and recommend that you have the, don't get the abridged version, get the full version, but one of the advantages is that every introduction to every book has a f uh, two features, one of which the ESV Study Bible also has, is how do you find Christ? It, you know, how is Christ featured in this book or portrayed and so forth? And, and what, for instance, in Exodus, the Passover lamb is a foreshadowing of Christ. But the other feature that it has is how does this book relate to the other books of Scripture? And that's something that not enough of is done. 
You know, uh, the reason you want to read whole books is there's a modern approach to, to, to Bible study where you have your preconceived theology and then you lift proof texts out of their content, context to, to prove what you're, what you're already assuming to be true. Nathan just sent me an article by, uh, who's the guy that wrote Jesus V? Joel McDermott. Uh, about a phenomena that is rampant in our culture called confirmation bias. You know, people are, the, the reason there's, uh, even in the news, the reason there's the, the liberal CNNs versus the more conservative Foxes is people are looking for uh, news commentary and so forth that, that confirms their already existing opinion. That the prevalence of that is in, in an antidote there and is one of the reasons I went to a secular humanistic college on purpose. Why not study the, your opposition's point of view? Oops, shouldn't be United Chapter Paul, but my bad. I apologize. I love this sucker nice. So. Um, all right, so let's get into this. Hard to get over sins that you really like. I chew ice every day. Uh, Psalm 119, verse 6. The sum of your word is true, and every one of your righteous rules, which uh, some translations use ordinances or judgments there, endures forever. Now, we've done a lot. Uh, by the way, the NASB is ordinances and NKJV is uh, judgments. Um, uh, Isaiah 48, verse 8, we, we referred to last, it was one of the scripture readings last Sunday, uh, to the law and to the testimony. If they don't speak according to these, it's because they have no light or, or no dawn. So, um, at the risk of, th- if, of upsetting the fact that I know we have uh, statistics majors, we have math majors, we have engineers, we have uh, people who know math a lot more than me. I took uh, pre-calculus or trigonometry or whatever my freshman year in high school and college, and I said, "Hmm, that would if I continue in this math thing, I have to actually really study and do homework and so forth." So I majored in some, something called liberal studies where you wouldn't have to, have to do anything except read a lot and, and debate a lot and write papers. Uh, but there was actually, you know, I, I like the liberal studies because, you know, in the academic world today, there's no right opinion except if you uh, actually have a, some kind of Judeo-Christian perspective. That's, that's the only wrong opinion. Uh, so... Um, so... You know, maybe it seems a little too uh, elementary to talk about what a sum is, but we're going to do it anyway. Because you need to think about this. A sum, a quantity obtained by the addition of every number in a group or every point in a series of ideas. When you sum up something, you focus on and take into account every one of its points. Only when including every number in the equation 
do we get the one sole number that is a sum? Missing any numbers yields a different sum. Now, this point was uh, something I thought a lot about when I was five and six and seven because I like to watch football. And in football, you score two points for a safety, three points for a field goal, six points for a touchdown, but they make the extra point pretty easy, so you usually get seven points for a touchdown because they want a touchdown to be just a little bit better than two coming short of touchdowns that you have to settle for a three-point field goal. It's quite, uh, quite an important aspect of American football, uh, not what the rest of the world calls football. But um, when you watch a game, if you kind of look at it quarter by quarter, you'll see like first quarter, 10 for this team, seven for this team, and then the next quarter, three and 10 and seven and 14 or whatever. And, you know, when, you, uh, when the powerhouse schools like Alabama and Ohio State and these uh, kind of schools play uh, their warm-up games, there's no, there's no preseason in college football. So they, they schedule to play Youngstown State, uh, Ball State, Eastern Michigan, and so forth. Uh, they they sched, schedule cupcakes as their uh, uh, you know, teams that are good for warming up against. Uh, unfortunately, Ohio State's begun to experience that when they play Michigan, but hopefully Michigan will be back. No. <laughs> Just kidding, Logan. Um, <laughs> he's leaving. He's going to another church. Let's get north of here. <laughs> but, you know... The thing I always knew about football is, the, you know, the way they get these scores, like 77 to 3, is 7 plus 7 plus 7 plus 7 plus 7 plus 7. And if you take out, uh, when you know, you get a lot of scores in football, like 31 to 28, which is usually four touchdowns and a field goal to four touchdowns. But if you take out one or two of the touchdowns, it's an entirely different sum, now, I know this is a super elementary point, but now you've got to apply this to the Bible. If we persist in this thing where we read scriptures without reading the whole chapter, if we read chapters without reading the whole book, and if we read books without putting in the context of all 66 of the books, we get a very different message. This is a huge reason we, that almost every form of biblical Christianity in the entire world, one, one, you know, Ephesians 6 tells us that there are angels, principalities, spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places, and they dominate aspects of certain cultures. So in America, we have certain spirits that are over the whole country, that are trying to ruin the church in the whole country. And it's, it, is, it is complete foolishness not to take Ephesians 6, as illustrated by Daniel's experience in Daniel 9, for instance, seriously, and to understand that one of our goals as a church has to be to wrestle with 
together the principalities and powers that are over American Christianity and carve a path back against them. And in worldwide evangelical Christianity, there's a spirit of religious confusion that we, uh, I found when we were in India totally dominates the church to the point where in many cases it would be much, it's actually a hindrance to stay involved in these churches that don't believe in the baptism in the Spirit. Actually, Paul goes so far as to say that there will come a time that churches hold to a form of godliness, but they deny the dunamis, that is the person in ministry and power of the Spirit. And he says, avoid such people. Much of the church is actually teaching things that the scriptures make clear we should avoid, even having relationships with those kind of people. Now, we try to promote unity, and like when we work with, say, the Miami Valley Women's Center or whatever we can. Uh, but bad company corrupts good morals. You know, what we're, uh, what we're up against in India is the, the thing that's holding the church there back, even though it's just a beginning baby church and so forth, is involvement with their old churches that are, that are the source of their spiritual confusion and unbelief and not, not flowing in the power of the Spirit and not knowing how to walk in community. And that a lot of us uh, here in Dayton, we, we struggle with those kind of things. I'm all for uh, having relationships with other Christians, but keep in mind God's called us to a particular mission and to particular goals, and he tells us, to, like Paul told Timothy, guard that which has been entrusted to you. If I'm uh, wanting to get baptized in the Spirit and I keep fellowshipping with people who aren't baptized in the Spirit, I'm undermining the faith that God is trying to give me. That's why we don't just have anybody take someone through the four. You know, we, we use a, a mini-series on the Holy Spirit to help people get ready to get baptized in the Spirit. It's important that the people who are leading those are full of faith and power. You know, uh, we have lots of people who are good at doing that right now. But listen to this carefully. Almost everybody in our church that's really good at doing that has grown in, the, in their faith and the anointing and the power of the Spirit that they carry over time. And the first couple times they took someone through that series, at the end, I had to meet with the person that they taught and shore up their faith one or two times before they were ready to get prayed for. There's no shame in that. That's, you know, that's part of how you grow. So I want you to, to uh, take people through our various teaching series on various things, but realize that as, you know, like what you really know, deep revelation coming, drum roll in my mind, should probably keep John Luke up there and work with him on drum rolls during the message. No, um, it's really what you, what you're living in Christ. 
you know, I'm so amazed at the number of people that have this kind of like know-it-all air uh, who can't live it. And, uh, you know, uh, you, can, you know, one of the wonderful things about, about community is in community, you kind of almost always know who's really moving forward and having the good, so to speak. And our hope is that everyone is. And if someone is being hindered by this or that, like their own pride or, or excuse-making or blame-shifting or whatever, we're, we don't want to condemn them. We want to help them. But there's no loving without making people see painful truths to see. Love requires that. You know, I, I work on a daily basis with three ladies, um, Catherine, Deanna, and Christiana. And those three people probably rebuke me more than any other people in our church. And get, let me tell you the deep secret. This is really, this is really insightful. The reason they confront and rebuke me is because I need it. <laughs> Oh, wow, that's deep, isn't it? But, um, I, you know, I have all the great insights. You know, there's um, some people have discernment of spirits. I have, like, a, a, a similar gift called a keen sense for the obvious. But, um, uh, no, it's sort of the opposite of discernment of spirits, discernment of the, of the obvious. But, um, so, some, th- this word some is big deal. It's a big deal, even though it's a three-letter word. Not a four-letter word, thankfully. <laughs> it's a sum. 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 The sum of thy word is truth. So if you can't tell me what the book of Ecclesiastes is about, or uh, who was the minor prophet that was a shepherd... You got, you, you got problems understanding uh, what Jesus has to say because he quotes that minor prophet that's a shepherd. And part of what he had to say was as good as it was because he was a shepherd. 2 Timothy 2.15, be diligent. That Greek word means uh, intense you know, like Noel. Noel is one of the most intense people I know. And it's like, be on it. You know, I want you to wait three hours. Okay, I waited three minutes. Is that close enough? <laughs> you know, uh, you know that's, that's what it means to be diligent. She's not sleeping. Uh, ever. <laughs> no time for that. You know, uh, you know, you got to be more active. Come on, guys. Um, be diligent to present yourself approved to, to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. Now, most of you probably know that the King James Version for that verse says, rightly dividing the word of truth. And there's an old joke I can't remember who I heard it first from, probably Bob Mumford or somebody like that. 
said that, you know, the problem with the dispensationalist and the King James only people and stuff is they know how to rightly divide the word of truth. They're just not very good at putting it back together. And that, in essence, in essence, dispensational theology is exactly that. It's taking the Bible and making it discontinuous instead of continuous. There's a continuity between all the covenants of the Bible. What we call the Old Covenant is actually a bad name. Quit calling it that. Call it the Hebrew Scriptures because it has the Dominion Covenant of Genesis 1, 2, and 3. It has the Noahic Covenant of Genesis 6 through 9 or so. It has the Mosaic Covenant found in Exodus uh, starting in mm, 17 through the rest of the book or whatever. Uh, oh, I skipped the Abrahamic covenant. Woo, back up. <laughs> uh, you know, and uh, so forth. It's got a bunch of covenants. And each one is in continuity with the previous one, as Paul makes clear in Galatians when he says that when you uh, uh, for, form a new covenant, it can't uh, dis diminish or take away from the previous covenants. So the, the continuity between covenants includes this. In the new covenant, God has fulfilled, is fulfilling, and will continue to fulfill the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant and the Davidic covenant. That's why Jesus called himself in the Gospel of Luke 34 times Ben-Adam, the Son of Man. He's, he's not uh, taking, as I thought when I was first a Christian, just, what's well, a nice, you know, he's, he's just telling us his humanity uh, because, you know, uh, Sam is a Son of Man. Right? Everyone in this room is a Son of Man because we're human, and so we you know, we're born of a biological father. But he, Jesus is intentionally using a title from Daniel chapter 7. So read that chapter and, and, you'll, and Jesus is giving you a clue as to who he is. He's the Messiah. They, they, he's telling them very plainly, I'm the Messiah. You know, thank God that Jesus is not as sarcastic as some of us. Because, you know, when they ask, come up and they go, are you the one who's coming? Are you the Messiah? Or should we look for someone else? You know, like, he, he doesn't just go, what have I been telling you all along? What do you think it means that I call myself the Ben-Adam 34 times already? Are you paying attention? McFly! Mc, you know? <laughs> McFly, I'm your density. <laughs> Second Timothy three, fourteen through seventeen. But as for you, continue, meno, remain in, abide in, dwell in, live in what you have learned and have firmly believed or become convinced of in, uh, I think, is uh, ESV. Um, knowing from who you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writing, sometimes translated holy scriptures, 
which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Some scriptures, especially the, our favorite New Testament ones, are breathed out and inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Is that what it says? Is that your translation? You know, again, some is a three-letter word. Maybe we should call this message the th three-letter words. All, all, all. John Luke prophesied once on a Friday night, thus saith the Lord, all means all. <laughs> that was really deep. <laughs> all scripture. So how can you even know any scripture if you don't know all scripture? You can't. There one of the things you need to learn to do is, besides read whole books, look for major themes in each book you read. See if you can, after you read the book, write down without looking back three major themes or five major themes or seven or ten. You can choose your number. That's why one of the books of the year was called The Heart of the Old Testament, which is a book about nine major themes of the Old Testament, and it has 10 chapters because he considered covenant such a major theme that he wrote two chapters on covenant. The man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Equipped for once in a while a good work. You know, when Paul tells Timothy to do the work of evangelism, here's what I want to help us with. This is something I'm, uh, you know, when the... I may not be able to wait much longer. I've been trying to wait till the COVID thing's over, but, you know, we started these discipleship groups, and I have a discipleship group, but we haven't met yet. But what I, one of the things that I am going to work on is equipping our leaders to be more effective, especially at the continuism of what we call the EPDC, the Evangelistic Pastoral Discipleship Continuum. Because a lot of times we are compassionate and gracious, but we're not that good at, at, at helping be a part of converting the soul. Psalm 19 was, that, was one of the readings today. The law of the Lord is perfect, right? Psalm 19, verse 7. And the King James actually says converting the soul. The New American Standard says restoring the soul. Both words are really good. You know what sanctification is? As you is uh, a more biblically conversion. That's why we always say the line between receiving Jesus that includes two steps. What hopefully what are they? The new birth and conversion. Both of those are part of the one step called receiving Jesus Christ. And conversion invo involves words like being drawn to God, being convicted of our sin, no longer blame-shifting, excuse-making, rationalizing, or just saying, making, you know, like, I have a route, right to be grouchy. I had trouble sleeping last night. I, I had a route, right to be grouchy because... Logan sometimes eats all my favorite foods before I get to him. You know, <laughs> you, know, we, you know, we don't have a right to be grouchy. 
Where, where, find me a chapter and verse. Thou has a right to be grouchy, and you can treat your roommates terribly. How you treat your roommates tells you exactly where you're at with God. How can you say you love God whom you have not seen when you don't love your roommate whom you have seen? Whether she's your wife or you're single and, and uh, it's John Luke or something. You know, how can you love God whom you haven't seen if you don't love John Luke? You know, make it practical. Now, you know, of course, we live in a church, and in a, because this is true of everybody, we all have our Logans who are so easy to love, it doesn't require, I, I don't need to even be particularly in the spirit to love Logan. Be, uh, I don't even have to be awake. <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know. But then, we, but then there's other people who are a little bit more challenging. And the, the Bible doesn't say, like, love the easy ones, does it? All scripture is breathed out by God, all of it. And if you don't have all of it, how can the man of God be complete, equipped for every good work? You know, part, part of loving people is to do the hard work of saying things that are convicting, challenging, helping people confess, which means to stop blame-shifting, excuse-making, rationalizing, and and telling yourself, I have a right to do this. And uh, repentance, which always brings forth fruit, repentance is radical. Uh, if you haven't ever done, gone through my uh, teaching on repentance, there's eight statements of definition about repentance. And one of the reasons it says repentance is radical because it gets down to this. Repentance is never, never, never just try harder. Yoda, although uh, most of the things, you know, Star Wars is this strange mix of mostly uh, Buddhist ideas with some Zoroastrian and some Christian veneer in the storylines. So Yoda, when he's like a Christian discipler of John Luke, uh, he, says, he, he says, what, there's no try, do. That means bring... Uh, Repentance always bears fruit. Always. And it's always radical. What do we mean by that? It's never that I need to do something about that. It means I need to get the heck out of here and let Christ live through me. That's the only way I can repent. I don't have any holiness or righteousness in myself. Now, I make it easier than most pastors to know that. <laughs> but, but, uh, but the truth is, there's nothing good that dwells in me. Even Paul says that. Because, you know what? This, again, when he's very deep insight. Because there was nothing good that dwelt in Paul. Everything that he brought forth was by exchanging his life for the resurrected Christ. And that's why repentance is always radical. It goes to the roots. The whole old self has to be rooted up. 
There needs to be a sign that says, Byron doesn't live here anymore. Right on your t-shirt. That's what water baptism means. Daniel is dead. Long live the king. <laughs> Jesus. Right? That's what it means. Like, if you see someone that's particularly godly, it usually means they're particularly not leaning on their own self anymore. Some of you think Catherine's saved by works, but it's just because she's had to acquire so much grace to live with me. <laughs> and she walks in the power of his resurrection so that she doesn't go crazy. Uh, I was, by the way, only planning to get through Roman numeral four today. Um, Roman numeral five is 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 actually the start of five B for next week. So let's uh, let's talk a little bit about plenary inspiration of Scripture. So when the when it says all Scripture, that's the basis of a doctrine that you should have memorized. If you don't know this, and you've been coming to Grace Christian Fellowship more than two Sundays. There's, you're, there's a problem with your listening skills you need to learn because this is something we talk about like every day. You know, when the guys get together to play board games, they talk about the plenary inspiration of Scripture. Uh, it's just plenary means full. So inspiration of the plenary inspiration of Scripture has to do with two points. Let's see if I can, first of all, Read this. Uh, I, I put a website there from, uh, there's a website called carm.org that has some pretty good stuff on it. But it means it's inspired and it's inerrant. So let's make sure you know what this means. Plenary means that all parts of the Bible are equally authoritative. So Song of Solomon is as important as Job. I used to not read Job. You know that, right? Because I thought it said job. This includes such things as genealogies of the old. T- I hate the genealogies. You know, I'm perfectly okay with your skimming some of the genealogies and hitting the hit, uh, hitting just the, some of the big names and going, you know, see if you can remember who Caleb was or what have you. But you should always say, why is this genealogy here, and why is it important? If you want to understand the four Gospels better, of course, I've taught on this many times, so most of you know this, but each of the four Gospels has a different genealogy, which is the key to what what the major theme of that Gospel is. Of course, Mark's uh, key is that Mark doesn't have a genealogy. The other three do, and they all tell you what the major theme of that Gospel is. So that's your homework. Tell me what I'm talking about. Uh, All parts of the Bible are of divine origin. Inspiration means God guided the process. The idea behind the word inspiration is that God supernaturally guided the biblical authors to write the exact things that he wanted to express. The, The result is holy scripture. Now, what I mean by this is this. It's not a... um, like, you know, when Sam uh, Chen Sing Poon, uh, sometimes I say it right, Samuel Chen Sing Poon uh, 
does a great job with worship. And I go at the lunch afterwards, Sam, you really inspired me this morning. Uh, Inspiration of scripture means a very complicated thing. First of all, that God who is eternal, you know, I, I got a little mushy and cr- crying a little bit when we were, were saying the Nicene Creed today. I always get choked up over the line, the eternally begotten Son of God. Because it's like, you know, eternally begotten, uh, you know, like... Uh, for all eternity, that's something worth worshiping about. I have four children. They were all begotten. and uh, But uh, they were begotten at exact dates. That's why we have birthdays. And we have, a, we have a birthday where we celebrate Christ's incarnation and his humanity, but we don't celebrate Christ's creation because he wasn't created. He was the creator. And there was never a time when he wasn't the son of the father, but he was begotten of the father. So when you got that uh, figured out, you can buy me Penn Station. Uh, So inerrant uh, inspiration means that the creator was, first of all, a triune being, Three persons in one being, figure, figure that one out, that were all co-equal and co-eternal, but had hierarchy in, their, in, their, in what they call the economic trinity. The ontological trinity is a theological term that refers to the fact that of describing the, the one being of God, but how he functioned in history is called the economic trinity, and the Father directs the Son, and the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son and has come to do their will. As the Son said, I delight to do thy will to the Father. Okay? This is a long message. I'm past time. But this, I'm actually, I have stayed on the topic of uh, this is good stuff about all Scripture and an introduction to all Scripture. You really need to understand this uh, inspiration thing. So this creator had an eternal word. So there's nothing in scripture that actually began when it was written down in the book of James or the book of Joel or whatever. God knew the eternal scripture from all eternity. There was never a time where there wasn't uh, Genesis or Revelation or any of the books in between. But there was a time when they weren't incarnated into human history yet just like Christ. In that sense, the words of God are the eternally begotten words of God. Okay? So please understand that. Yet God chose, like he did with the birth of Christ, to allow nations to rise and fall, generations to come and go, economies to happen and so forth, so that he could have his son born in a particular predetermined uh, time and place in the middle of Palestine during a period of time called the Pax Romana, which was up until then uh, the time when things had changed so much that, the, that there would be a maximum opportunity to, to spread that message. In other words, because Rome 
had conquered the entire, all the countries surrounding the Mediterranean Sea in, in Europe, uh, the Middle East, and Northern Africa, and had built extensive roads and so forth, God predetermined Christ to be born at a time when the church would be uniquely able to take the gospel to the ends of the earth in one century. That's why we know that people like Andrew and James made it to places like Sweden and Norway and Finland. Uh, Thomas, of course, made it to southern India, southeast India, and so forth. And, and we know that all of this happened because Christ was born at a unique time in the history of man that the Bible calls the fullness of time, right? Just like the Holy Spirit was poured out at a time when there was uh, cassette tapes. Now, we probably have a few people young enough in our church that they don't know what a cassette tape is, but, uh, but God uniquely spread that message. There, there's uh, a lot that's going to come out of the fact that God is pouring out his spirit and he's going to restore his church over the next century or two in a time when communication is unprecedented. I have Bible studies all the time, face-to-face with people all around the world. And hopefully you do. And you can disciple someone in Singapore easily today. That's a unique opportunity. And so God actually worked in such a way that he birthed people into certain tribes and families, Israel, etc. He sanctified them, them through the things in their life. He, in, he revealed things to them. He imparted things to them in such a way that although there's no one in our church that's particularly a good Christian, nor is, was Abraham perfect, I, nor Isaac, nor Jacob, nor David, you know, some of, some of the key figures in Scripture Some of their sins are right there to be seen. Yet God was able to work in and through them by his spirit and by his sanctification processes, by his ways, in order that at key times they wrote a perfect word from God with no errors. You know, when... when, David is summing up his life to his son Solomon. He says, the spirit of the Lord spoke through me. My tongue was the pen of the Almighty. And so the fact that scripture, it's not as simple as uh, if I dictated a letter to Christiana and she typed it up, and, she, and I didn't ask her opinion about any wordings or where to put the commas or how to spell certain things. Uh, and you would go, well, this is definitely Greg's writing. You know, uh, it, it's, it's not like that. Every book of Scripture, the actual circumstances of the author, the personality of the author the giftedness of the author, the perspectives of the author author actually come through 
And it's as great as the mystery of the incarnation. There's three great truths that Christianity has. One, the Trinity. Two, the incarnation. And three, the inerrancy of Scripture. The inspiration of Scripture. Such a way that Paul's personality, Paul's unique calling, uh, Paul's unique insights come through in his writings, but in such a way as they are 100% perfectly the will of God. Just like Jesus is 100% eternally begotten Son of God and 100% man, in such a way that the two natures form one person, but there's no confusion of the two natures. Such is the Scripture. That's what the inspiration of Scripture means. Did you hear that? Like, If you don't understand that's what the inspiration of Scripture means, you've been going to the wrong church. Like, That's one of the things you should learn in your first few weeks of being a Christian. Those who disciple in our church, who lead discipleship groups, make sure you teach every member of the group what the inerrancy of Scripture means, what the inspiration of Scripture means. I mean, I keep, I keep using the wrong word. That's what the inerrancy of Scripture means. It's important that we know it. I mean, the, the inspiration of Scripture, that God breathed it, God wrote it, and he superseded the process in that complicated way that I just described, where he actually chose the, the writer, he worked in their life, he sanctified them, their circumstances, their personality, their emphasis still come through in such a way that it's perfectly the word of God. That's what inspiration means, right? That, that's a very basic reformed perspective on inspiration, Daniel, right? You could get it in Bible on being. Uh, <laughs> uh, now, inerrancy th- does not mean what you think it does. Uh, or that inerrancy uh, does mean that, that uh, what we just covered. In, then there's the idea called infallibility. What does that mean? I would say John Luke is fallible. Now, I don't know drums well enough that I could point out when, when he makes mistakes, so I wouldn't know, be able, except theoretically, to know that he's fallible and he doesn't play them perfectly. But I've seen him play basketball, and I know he misses shots. Amazing. And he doesn't always do a 720 circle and go and slam backwards when he dunks, right? Because, except in his dreams. You know, he, then he wakes up and goes, Ma, I wish I, were, I could do that. Uh, because uh, he's fallible. Right, But the infallibility of Scripture doesn't just mean that uh, Josiah, although he got straight A's on his, when he got his associates, he probably didn't get 100% of the points in every class. Did you ever get any questions wrong on a test, Josiah? Of course, right? Because you're not infallible. But infallibility of Scripture is based on Isaiah 55 that says, as the rain that comes from the heaven and the dew does not return to me empty without accomplishing the purpose I sent it for. This is, this is important. This, this is huge because so many people are not very bold with evangelism. I know people, I've had friends, that the, one, some of their deepest regrets is their brother was dying 
and they still couldn't work up the courage to teach him the gospel or something. Right? Why? Because they didn't understand the infallibility of Scripture. The Word of God cannot go forth without accomplishing the purpose that God is sending it. It will always do what God wants it to do. It won't always do what we want it to do. (laughs) But it will always do what God wants it to do. It's infallible. That's what infallibility means. Though, When you're preaching the gospel, that's why Paul, God speaks to Paul in the book of Acts and says, keep preaching because I have many people in this city. When you proclaim the gospel, like let's say you go door to door in the, at Wright State or share the gospel uh, in the food court at a, at a mall or whatever, God will perfectly do with that word what he intends to do. And it will bear fruit. Now, I want to give you uh, another very deep insight that you have to have. These are insights that if you don't have, you don't have a good foundation in your walk. So, you know, today I'm not as upset that I've gone long because, you know, I'm trying to make sure you have a full explanation of the sum of thy word is truth. That's what we're talking about today. So here's a very important thing. I sometimes have uh, insight from the Lord and the Holy Spirit when I first start working with a person, what God is doing and how to cooperate with God's work in that person's life. And when I get that, it always bears great fruit. Uh, One of the most important people I've ever experienced that with, with was Jason Hale. I knew not to, you know, that he needed to understand this, this, and this, and I explained what he needed to understand to him one of our first times we ever went out to eat. But I didn't actually tell him about those things after that. I gave him, uh, he was reading the scriptures, and I gave him a list of books and said, study these three things over the next couple of years. And he's such a faithful, dependable and cerebral guy that he needed to have a satisfied mind by studying it. And he came to the right conclusions on all three of the issues because the word of God is is clear. That's another thing we'll talk about coming up is a doctrine called the clarity of Scripture. But Scripture will always do what God sends it for. So I this, this is very important. No one can come to the Father or to Jesus, I'm sorry, unless the Father draws him, right? God chooses and predestines and elects those who the word of God is going to be an aroma for salvation. To some, the witness of the gospel, it will actually be that which judges and condemns them. And we don't choose who's who. We choose to lovingly, obediently, uh, as, as a servant, give them the whole message in the best way we know how to or can. You know, John Bradbury was another guy that right from the beginning, I knew how to lead him to the Lord. Because we, we don't really lead someone to the Lord. Logan led him to the, brought him to the church, 
And from after church, we had a church picnic that day, and Bradbury and I were over an hour late because we were talking about the gospel. And, and I knew right away this is how he's going to come to Christ and how, and, it would, and how many months it would take and what the issues he had to get through. And I purposely didn't pray to re, with him to receive Christ when almost everyone else would have for another two or three months because I wanted him to work through certain issues that the Lord helped me see that I had never done that approach with any other person before. So this is important for all of you who want to grow in the ministry. God has to give you the plan because we're more like midwives. We're not really, uh, we're not so much the far planter as the harvester in a way. Not that we don't plant in water, of course, Scripture says we do, but God has to cause the growth. And you have to know how God's going to cause the growth. So this is, a, I'm working toward a very important statement. I have had numerous, numerous, numerous times and anyone who's begun to be fruitful has had this experience where you knew in advance how to proceed with helping someone grow, and you even knew it was going to bear fruit, and they were coming to the Lord. I have never, 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 never had a situation where God showed me this person is not going to come to the Lord, you're wasting their time. your time. I have had many times when I just didn't know, so I do what the Bible commands us to do, preach the gospel to all creation. And there have been some of those where God, that it bears amazing fruit, and I was quite surprised. And there's others that it bore bad, didn't bear fruit, and I was quite surprised. Right? God will never show you that this person's not part of the elect or whatever. Your job is to love them and share the, the fragrance of Christ and share the word of the cross, uh, etc. As, as uh, gently and graciously with as much uh, good, with as much wise mixture of truth which hurts, and grace, which, which uh, I want to say heals, but, you know, there's a reason, you know, wine and oil, wine stings in the cut, and oil soothes it. And we need, you know, Colossians 4, let your speech be gracious, seasoned as it were with salt. Rub salt in the wound when, when that's called for, and, uh, or wine so it won't get infected, and put uh, olive oil on, the, on it when, when that's called for. But, it, it, but the word of God is infallible. God will do what he pleases. And he's just chosen to show his greater glory by using knuckleheads like us. Because that's far more glorious than if he did it direct without us. That would be less impressive. You know, when somebody moves forward in the Lord, and I'm able, like two or three years later, to go, thank God for how much Sam has grown. And, and you know, even though I mucked it up here and here and here, by the grace of God, somehow I didn't muck it up so bad that it, that it cost him that, <laughs> too. Right? 
That's kind of what it means to bear fruit, right, Deanna? You know, right? There's so many times when you know, oh man, I should have done a better job with this. I didn't hear the Lord here. I didn't obey here. I didn't. Uh, I tried to push him along too fast here. Uh, I wasn't pa- patiently waiting for the right time uh, here, and uh, yet somehow God still caused His word to be effective. Now, that's a long teaching. We're way past time. You can shoot me later if you want. Uh, but if the Lord doesn't want me to die, you'll miss. It'll be, and, uh, and if he doesn't want me to die, I won't get COVID-19. So, uh, but all scripture is inspired by God. The sum of thy word is truth. Therefore, I hate every false way. So, uh, this all we are doing today is is starting with uh, emphasis five on the Word of God by emphasizing that the entire Word of God summed together is what we need to, to to know, and if we're missing parts, it will warp our entire understanding of it, and that's why. Uh, Eventually, in the, this in emphasis five here, we are going in a direction where we are going to sh- be seen in a in, a, in several. It'll be several weeks down the road, but we are going to see that there are many theologies in so-called Bible-believing uh, Christianity today. That if you go to a church that teaches these theologies, the Bible actually commands you to stop going to that church. Because uh, if you, there are theologies which effectively take away the doctrine that all scripture is inspired by God, such as dispensationalism. And if you go to a church that teaches dispensationalism, quit the church and go to a church that teaches covenant theology. And if you go to a church that's cessationist, quit the church and go to a church that pursues the baptism in the spirit. Because you're actually disobeying God to continue to go to a church where it, they, they hold to a form of godliness, but they deny the power of. The scripture clearly tells us to avoid such men as these. 